In today's episode of the Iman Wire podcast. I was able to amass a large social media following, but I was entirely unsuccessful. In the social media world, sure, I was successful, but in the spiritual realm, in my own personal development, I was completely unsuccessful. And one of my mentors told me, he said, listen, stop writing about yourself. Stop writing about what you're doing, where you're going, who you're working with. Stop taking selfies with people. Stop all of that. Just focus on the art. Do art that's so significant that someone else writes about it. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Iman Mahir podcast. I'm Salim here from Iman Wire with uh, Mutasim Adia from uh, Al Madin Institute. And joining us today is Mustafa Davis. Mustafa Davis um, is a uh, well acclaimed uh, filmmaker, photographer, has served in the capacity as a media consultant, media director. And I think, especially, I think for our um, discussion today, which is very relevant, has uh, been involved and contributed to. Um, the media uh, production in a lot of different Muslim organizations uh, throughout the world. So uh, first, I want to welcome you here, Mustafa. Thanks for joining us. Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum assalam alaikum It's a pleasure. And Mutasam, of course, yes. Assalamu alaikum. Good to see you again. <laughs> Good to see Salim. you again as well. <laughs> no, you know, uh, Subhanallah, Salim. I don't know if you know, but Mustafa and I were recently just in uh, in Turkey together, and we're in Istanbul. And Mustafa, you know, when we were going around and we we're seeing all these amazing massages, one of the things I kept on seeing was the architectural work of Sinan. And everyone concentrates on him being this amazing architect. But to me, he was like, a, he was a spiritual artist because he was an individual who loved Allah, loved his messenger, والسلام, and he transformed that love from his heart into his work. And, uh, you know, I see you as that, you know, that you're, you've continued that legacy of Sinan, but in the digital media age. So I'm just wondering, like, do you ever look back or when we were in Turkey, did you feel like, you know, I've got a connection to people like Sinan through this, you know, unique connection of being spiritual artists? I, I hope I do. I mean, that's kind of a lofty claim to put me in the likes of someone like Sinan. Uh, but I appreciate that you use the term spiritual artist. A, a lot of people have used the term Muslim artist, and, and I don't particularly like this term. Uh, because it denotes that Islam is the only thing that informs your art. Mm -hmm. And as someone who converted to Islam at the age of 24, I had a long period of life uh, before I became Muslim and a long period of, of life as, a, as an artist as well. I became a photographer at the age of 11. Uh, I started... I was playing video games. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was 17 the first time I was published in a newspaper. Uh, and so Islam is my foundation. Uh, it is the, the, the roof that everything that comes down upon me fil is filtered through, but it's not all that I am. And so sometimes I think when we're talking about art in Islam, when we use the term Muslim artist, I think it's a bit limiting for, for people. So I prefer to say that I'm, a, I'm an artist who is Muslim. My Islam is my faith background, but I'm an artist. But this is the first time I've heard the term spiritual artist, and I don't have much as much of a problem with that as I do. It's Muslim interesting artists. you say that because I think for a lot of people, you know, Muslims have had we've had this sort of uh, very difficult relationship in how we um, approach art because, you know, the only Islamic art is like you know calligraphy, calligraphy right? right? You know, and that's right. the only thing that's permissible. Like no images, icons, of course. Uh, but just even the idea of engaging the medium of art, whatever form it is, it's very high, I think hard for a lot of people to. To deal with that. And I think that's when where you're, where you're saying about the Muslim artist versus spiritual artist is because like I think people get threatened sometimes when you, if you don't say Muslim artist or Muslim art because they think you're bringing in some jahiliya type uh, influence into what you're producing. But as you're saying, it's something 
it's something beyond it's something more rude actually just in the human experience than that you're a spiritual being absolutely and, and i think to your, to your point i think that is why uh i have take issue with the term is because of the the contentious relationship between art and islam again unless you're doing calligraphy or acapella nasheed with the duff uh, that's been accepted traditionally, but even, I remember even when I first started out doing art as a Muslim, um, we were making sure that there was disclaimers on our films, that there are no real musical instruments used in this, or we weren't using musical instruments at all. We were just doing, you know, voices. And so it, it's interesting, and, and, and maybe I, I should talk just briefly about my trajectory because I've never really had that same issue that I've found that a lot of Muslim artists struggle with. And, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit later, but I think this is why the concept of iqan and, and perfecting art is something that we still struggle with as a, as a Muslim community. You know, I've heard people who've done some, some music or even, you know, paintings or, or whatever the art form. And if you, if it's juxtaposed with mainstream art, the quality level isn't always synonymous. It's not always at the same level. And if you talk to some of these individuals, they'll say, well, I'm just doing it for da'wah. And, and for me, I take issue with this because you're not just doing it for da'wah. If you're doing it for da'wah, it should be even better than what the mainstream sources are who don't have a spiritual uh, connection. But for me, I was told to go into, into art uh, by my teachers. I was in my, 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 my study circles in Dara Mustafa and Tarim Yemen at the time studying Shafi Fiqh. And it was my teachers then who said, we see an inclination in you towards this art, so we're going to push you in this. And and the phrase that they said is that this is how you're going to reach Allah, is through this. So I've never had that kind of contentious relationship with, with art. I've had that contentious relationship with some elements of the Muslim community, but not necessarily in my own uh, spiritual development as an as an artist, which is amazing, and, and it's it's so prophetic, you know, from your teachers that you know they see that the individuals in front of them are all different, and that each one of them, their hearts will reach Allah Subhanahu wa Taala through a way that Allah decreed, and so there's like an encouragement of that. It's not like your teacher said, "Hey, get that out of you. No, go back to the books, and this is the only way you're going to reach Allah." But interestingly, I, I did complain uh, because I'm an American convert, and we're we get to kind of uh, take the station of the Bedouins who used to ask the Prophet Muhammad <laughs> questions that the Sahaba were afraid to ask. And I did complain and, and say, you know, but I left it for such a long period of time because after I converted, people told me photography was impermissible. Uh, I was a piano player as well. And they said, you know, stringed instruments, you can't play piano, it's impermissible. Uh, I was already making films at the time. They said it was impermissible. So I had left it for about five or six years. Mm. I, I didn't create any art whatsoever. What did so, that do to you, Mustafa? It 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 suffocated me, if I'm honest. It suffocated me. Uh, I found myself going through the, the motions of religiosity, going through the motions of, of being a Muslim, but not really feeling content. Because you can't really be your, your, well, it's yourself. All I, you it's can't all be I you. knew. It's all, it's all I had, right? It was my only form of, of self-expression as a child. You know, a child growing up in a broken home, uh, photography became my way that I was living vicariously through other families. I would go to the park and take pictures of people, families playing together at the park. And I kind of lived my own reality through that. And so not having that, I hadn't yet developed another mechanism of self-expression, to be able to express myself emotionally. So I felt really stifled. And it was, and, and I'm, and I maybe even brushing over it, it was very difficult, very, very difficult for me. And so when I was able to come back to it, I felt myself start, to become whole again. And so I went to my teacher and I said, you know, I lost so much 
in that five years, I could have been so much further ahead or so much further advanced in my art now if I had continued on and, and, and continued the training. And he said, no. He said, you had to stop it for a time so that now you can go back to it for the right reason. Before you were doing it for yourself, now we want you to do it for Allah. Amazing. Like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had to just, you know, like what he did to Sayyidina Ibrahim, you know, like work him down and then he built him back up the way. And it's amazing. Mustafa, I think, you know, what you're saying, it's, it's extremely powerful and it's very deep because sometimes, you know, we have uh, people convert to Islam coming from very complex backgrounds or people who aren't, aren't converts themselves, but they have a deep inclination to an art or, or something different. And, you know, someone a religious figure may see that art is something outside of the religious realm. So they give them this advice to stop it or don't do it, not realizing the harm that you're actually doing to that individual. And I think you mentioned that with your story about photography, which is it's amazing, you know? It happened, and I think we, we, we oftentimes play between these two extremes. There's the, you know, my, my mentor who said, you know, you did need to leave it for a time so that you could come back and do it for the right reason. I didn't reflect on it like that until he until he mentioned it. And now I see the wisdom uh, in that. And you have the other extreme, which is this is just my art. This is what I do. And, and I don't doesn't matter what my intention is. And, and I'm just going to be an artist. This, you know, and I, and, I, and I also teach art. So I've mentored a lot of young artists. This is kind of a dangerous area as well, because then it becomes the art takes precedence to the religion and the art is more important and the art is what informs you. And you find then you get into, you know, we I made jokes earlier about like duff and calligraphy being the only art forms, but we do have a Sharia. We, we still do have Islamic law and we do have, we do have parameters. And you find sometimes those artists will go beyond those right. uh, for the sake of the, of the art, you know, it I becomes an end in itself. It becomes a, a be, and the means and the end itself, you know, it's a very unique space that you can operate in Mustafa that you can, you know, you can talk to Islamic art as being an artist and uh, you know, the, the limits of it. I mean, do you feel that Sharia or, or the Dean of Allah has limited your ability to express yourself? Absolutely not. And I hear this argument all the time that the, the Sharia is too confined and, and I can't find a way to self-express within it. But I don't believe that. I believe that it causes you to be more creative, to find even more creative ways to express yourself within those, within those realms. And then if we're honest, if you're not able to do that, it could be one, a lack of creativity or a lack of training, or it could be two, we're just not supposed to go beyond that. And that's the level that we're supposed to do it in. Well, creativity, I mean, creativity is engendered by certain boundaries because when you're, when you're, when you have a certain framework or a boundary and you have to work in that, or you have to work um, somehow somehow around it or to, um, you know, embellish that, that's what, that's what, you know, cultivates creativity. I mean, that's why Muslims were, uh, for the, in terms of calligraphy, for example, I mean, they had certain restrictions in, you know, in terms of what they could, you know, present artistically. Uh, in terms of not putting images of, of, of uh, animate beings. And so they came up with these very delicate and, you know, um, designs because they had to break out or something. They had to, you know, that cultivated this creativity. So it's actually, uh, you know, even something like fasting, for example, like fasting by restricting yourself, um, you know, physically and spiritually, it actually makes, uh, it, it, it enlightens your creativity because you're in that mode of being restricted, you actually find other doors open where you're like, oh, okay, there's something here that I can explore that and you can do that. The, the Dean is actually based in that. 
that trying to make the individual fulfill their greatest spiritual potential. I think that's the art. Right. That's the art of it is finding a way to express yourself creatively within these within these parameters. And I think, you know, if you're not able to do that, I think it's just really a lack of creativity. And that might not be fair for me to say to apply it across the board, but I really do feel that, like finding a way to do it. So if we look at one of the most profound films uh, that we've seen considering the seerah of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu is Mustafa Laqad's, the late Mustafa Laqad's The Message, Al-Risala, Allah Rahamu. And he didn't depict the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu in there. He found a very clever way to use the camera to, to represent the viewpoint of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu And if you watch that film, you don't feel like it's it's missing anything. You don't feel like, oh, I wish I could have just seen the face of the Prophet Muhammad You don't feel that way. You feel like he did a great job creatively to express to express himself creatively in that medium. Yeah, you know, it's 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 amazing you say that. I mean, you talk about the spiritual art of Abu and the message. I mean, that film was you know one of the elements that really brought my heart to Allah. You know, and it it was a film. It wasn't a book that I read, or it wasn't a lecture that I heard, and. That's why I think that, you know, you're operating in such a powerful space. And that, do you know what year Musra Aqad's film was? That was like 1975, something like that. It was yeah, I think it was in the 70s. And I we're mean, in 2017 now and yeah. the, the likes of it hasn't yeah, been I mean, created. Just to your point, Matos, I mean, I, I mean, like for me to this day, the feeling of in the Sira of um, after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah um, and the conversion of Amr ibn As and Khaled ibn Walid, there's a scene in that movie where... Uh, Khalid and Amr are just sort of sitting on their horses and they're hearing the Muslims preach. And it's, you know, they're just looking at each other. And you can tell that there's this introspection going on. And to this day, I still remember that it's that, like, that, that power of that for me, of like that, the impact of Hudaybiyah and how it allowed just people to just listen and then people to really introspect Khalid and Amr in this case. A lot of us, you know, growing up Sunday school, that's what we watched. And, and it still is, an, it, it has left an indelible image in how we, you know, perceive the Sierra and have experienced it from a very young age. Thinking of, speaking of creativity, you know, that film, did you grow up watching the English version or the, or the Arabic version? Both, actually. Both. Uh, he created two films. There's not a, an English version with a subtitled right. Arabic version and an Arabic version with subtitled English. It was different cast, English, too. With different cast. He created two separate films which were both equally successful and both equally powerful. If that doesn't speak to someone's creativity, I don't, I don't know what right. does. So, which brings us to an interesting point, Mustafa. I mean, as Salim mentioned, you've, you've probably worked with 85% of the Muslim organizations <laughs> in America, and we're talking about spiritual creativity. So, they must have each reached out to you to produce spiritually creative things such as the message and things like that, Mustafa. That's why they're contacting you, isn't it? <laughs> no, I, if, 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 by the, if by creating the message you mean uh, fundraising videos <laughs> and, and promotional videos to help the organizations raise funds, then yes. <laughs> well, there you go, which brings us to an interesting conversation. So Mustafa, tell us the, the state of, of our organizations from a creativity standpoint. I mean, we, we talk about wanting to reach the hearts uh, via media. I mean, are we doing that? Uh, you know, I, I can't say that we're not, um, but I can say that I think we're we're we can still improve. There's still still improvements. Uh, again, because the, the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu told us in and right? Actions are by intentions. And so, if you're approaching a project and the intention is to raise funds for your organization, then you might achieve that end. Uh, whereas, if you're approaching a project and the goal is to reach hearts 
then it's a completely different mechanism. And it's, it, it takes a completely different set of, of tools in order to be able to do that. Uh, and, and part of that is, is, is time and money. You know, one of the things we, we, we often joke about is, you know, I'll usually get a call um, and, and it says, hey, we need a, a fundraising video for our annual fundraiser. Uh, and I'll say, okay, you know, when is your annual fundraiser? And they said, it's in two weeks. And we don't have a budget, uh, but we need it to be powerful. And we want you to put your signature on it and it has to reach the hearts. And so a lot of the work we've done, we've worked under these kind of really stringent parameters and just trying to finagle our way through and, and make it work. But it's, 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 it hasn't been, for the most part, work that I would say is as impactful as it could have been had we planned. And it's always, we joke about it as a, as a, as a crew, but the crew that I work with in that, you know, it's, it's ironic that, you know, two weeks before their annual fundraiser, they're thinking about media. And, and this goes back to, I think our earlier conversation, Salim, that media still tends to be an afterthought for a lot of Muslim organizations. And again, I think it's because of this contentious relationship between art. Like I, you know, I've been, I, I converted in 1996 in 1996, like the Nasheed albums you would find were all acapella there, you know, they were, you know, and, 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 and to be honest, uh, and, and not always with trained uh, vocalists. You know, it's just it's someone, hey, I want to do a Nishida album and I'm, I'm going to do it. Similar like someone's, hey, I want to make a film, but they don't have any film training or I want to be a calligrapher, but I haven't trained in, in, in calligraphy. So to your point earlier about, you know, art being contentious, I think that kind of plays into why organizations aren't giving it Aren't, aren't making it a forethought. That's not like the primary thing that they're thinking about is media production because it was contentious. And, you know, w when I converted in 96, you couldn't find a lot of art out there. As fast forward to now, you go to some of these major conferences and it's stringed guitars and like full quartets up there. And it's completely different. But at the same time, though, to, to what you're saying is um, actually sometimes now, like everything, everything has to have an ad. Everything has to have a picture. Everything has to have uh, uh, like a video. And it's like we won't consume it otherwise. The quality may not be yet where we want it to be, but I feel like almost expected in everything now that, uh, that you know, it's not relevant if you don't have. Media like, production media. has become marketing. Which, which brings us to another. I mean, there's so many interesting points I want to discuss with you, Mustafa. So, you know, here we are as individuals trying to maintain a certain spiritual balance in our hearts. And that's uh, that requires us by God to uh, to uh, curb our egos uh, and not feed the nufus. And then we engage in social media and it's just a complete egotistical put in any word that you'd like after that word. What are you supposed to do when you engage in social media while trying to preserve your spirituality? So to be fully, fully candid, I'm not sure it's entirely possible. Um in fact, this is the first thing that I've done that will go out publicly in a year and a half. And the reason for that is that, you know, I'm, a, I'm in media production, I'm in marketing, and I'm in branding. And so I have to apply those same uh, tools to my own brand for my own company, which is, you know, the company that would be invited by these Muslim organizations to create media for them. And if we were successful in it, and I, and I think we were, for these other organizations, we would be able to apply the same standards to ourselves. So my own personal brand, I was able to amass a large following on yeah. social media. I think altogether with Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, I had over 350,000 uh, followers. It's a large amount. It's a large amount. And, and what I found at one point was 
I wasn't able to differentiate now between what was marketing and what was nufus. Mm. Uh, was I enjoying the accolades and the and the and the praise and in the comments? Uh, there was a, actually a, a pivotal moment, and I don't think I've shared this shared this publicly. I you know I do street photography, and I've had my photos in galleries and, and exhibitions throughout the world. And, and that's kind of my, my main art. I started off as a photographer. If, if I were to say I had to leave all of them behind and keep one, it would probably keep the photography. Not necessarily because it's my most favorite, but because I think that's the one I'm most trained in. And I took some photos that in the photography community were praised. People were like, this is an amazing photo. The juxtaposition between the shapes and, and the colors and just the nuances of the photo people liked, mashallah. And I posted it on my Facebook page. And my Facebook page probably had an 80% or so Muslim following. And I noticed the photo didn't do much. I didn't get a lot of likes, didn't get a lot of praise. No one was really impressed with it. So I deleted it. And I replaced it with a photo that I took of the Kaaba when I was on, when I was on Umrah. It was an iPhone photo. It wasn't super interesting as a photograph, like in terms of like the, the art and the rules of, of photography. But I knew internally, and this wasn't a cognitive thought process when I was doing this, but I knew internally if I posted this photo of the Kaaba, it was going to be a bunch of mashallahs and tabarakallahs and amazings. And then people were going to say, wow, subhanAllah, you were there. How did you get that close? And so I deleted the good photo and I placed it with the Kaaba one. And the Kaaba one got, I think it got some, some over 50,000 likes mm. on Facebook. And I sat with that for a while mm. and I was disgusted with myself. Because I realized that I had now believed my own hype. Mm -hmm. uh, it, was it real or did I market myself right to get that way? What were the things that I was doing to get to that point to get people to do that? And there was that point when I said, I'm done. And so it was, it was definitely a pivotal moment. And I, and I literally shut down all my social media accounts. I shut down Facebook. I shut down Instagram. I shut down my Twitter. And I got offline for almost a complete year. Because I realized that I need to do some more spiritual development on the spiritual side of the artist right. part, right? Before I can engage again as the as the artist. It's a very deep story. So, Mustafa, what do you do then? You know, having gone through that experience and having lived it, and being a, I would, I would refer to you as a, you know, master of social media. When a young caller to Allah, a young guy who's sort of up and coming, male or female, comes to you. And says, hey, uh, you know, I really want you to sort of help me get my online social media traction going. I mean, do you do you share with them this reality that you went through as a warning to them? Or what do you do in that regard? I haven't, no. Uh, and I think I haven't because it's it's embarrassing, you know, of, you know, for to be as known as I was in the Muslim community and to be someone who was known to be connected to specific scholars and to have gone over to the Muslim world and traveled to realize that this far into it, I'm still this far back, right? Even though I've marketed myself to be so far ahead that the, the, the marketing reality didn't, didn't match up with my own personal reality. So I haven't discussed it with people yet. Uh, but what I've done is, is I've kind of talked to them uh, about some of the pitfalls and some of the and some of the dangers. It, for for example, you know, I don't I no longer do personal branding. 
I used to do personal branding, and I used to do personal branding for dais, for the duat, for the imma, for the scholars and imams, and I don't anymore. So, but uh, personal branding, you mean by like for like, a specific like instead you know, of instead of promotion of, of an ins- individual, instead of branding organization such and such, brand sheikh or sheikha or ustad or ustad so and so. I don't do that anymore, and the reason I don't do that is. I know the dangers. I lived them myself. And, you know, if, if you can if you can believe your own hype at that level, having connection to scholars, sitting with scholars on a, on a regular basis, then, you know, for the for the young and upcoming artists in particular, it's a very dangerous, dangerous thing. And one of my mentors told me, he said, listen, stop writing about yourself. Stop writing about what you're doing, where you're going, who you're working with. Stop taking selfies with people. Stop all of that. Just focus on the art. Do art that's so significant that someone else writes about it. Very deep. <laughs> Very deep. <laughs> you know, the you know the danger, obviously, that we see is that unlike in previous uh, times, individuals can, can really just uh, on their own self-promote to such an extent that they no longer, before in the past, you used to need like a group of people, an organization or a sponsor to try to get your message out there, your brand out there. Now with social media, anyone can just, uh, I mean, uh, someone in high school can be uh, a brand in themselves because now anybody can get that pedestal. And you can be famous for being the worst. And it's very scary. And I'll tell you, you know, let's take it to like a practical ground, you know, for Al Medina Institute, for example, you know, we have Pearls of the Quran, a conference that we do. If someone ever asked me, why don't you invite me to Pearls of the Quran? That's exactly the reason that we won't invite them to Pearls of the Quran. Because to me, that question is indicative of a, a lot of this social media problematic packaging. Like, you know, here I am, you know, I'm famous on the internet, bring me. And, it, and it's easy to, it's, it, 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 if my example, ho- hopefully what, what can be a lesson for people, I, as I was doing it, I never thought I was insincere. And and there were criticisms. I had friends of mine that would criticize me during that time and say, like, you know, it seems like you're just seeking fame. And I'd always internalize that as like, astaghfirullah, you should have a good opinion of your brother. How could you think that of me? You know me. And now in retrospect, I see how you could think that. And, and you know, people would say things like, you know, you, you name drop scholars just because it's going to push you ahead in your career. And at the moment when they said that, I was I was offended. You know, how could how dare they think that, you know, which if I were to translate it into into kind of modern vernacular now, it's that don't judge me. Right. right? How dare you judge me? Don't anything I do, you can't judge me. But now in retrospect, after, after having a year to kind of sit with myself and look back at it. Absolutely. I did that. Was I conscious of it? Not always was maybe there were some times of it, but but for the most part, no, I wasn't conscious of it. But looking back now and seeing in, did that happen? Absolutely. And so that can translate not just from an artist, it can translate to our our upcoming scholars as well, where it's not just, hey, I'll be at such an or hey, come to such and such mosque for such and such a program. It becomes come through to the mosque. I'll be given an amazing chutbah. Right. right? And that for me is it's, it's a scary. Slope. You know, it's, it's very scary. And I'll tell you, you know, for me personally, one of the gifts from Allah that he's given that's helped protect me from me has been having a senior scholar there that I'm afraid one day he may see something that I wrote out of my immaturity online and then ask me about it. So it even keeps me from writing it. But I think it's important here is that you have you have an actual relationship with this scholar. 
you know, there, there was one of my teachers is a, is a dear friend and a very prominent uh, American Muslim scholar uh, said to me once, he said, you know, there's people who will take a photo with me at a conference or a, or a lesson or they'll find a photo online and they'll post it with a quote of mine and, and mention that they're a student of mine. And, and they'll get accolades from that or they'll get some type of clout from that. And he mentioned to me, he said, I don't have any control over this. I don't have any control over who's doing this. He said, but I can tell you a lot of the people who are doing it aren't actually students of mine, meaning they don't take from me. They're not asking me for guidance. I'm not informing their life in any way. And so it's also social media is a platform where it's very easy to pretend. You know, it's, it's also very easy to pretend. You can create a false persona. And, and that's why I got offline is I realized that this guy who I've marketed myself to be isn't the reality of who I am behind closed doors. And I don't like this guy. I want to go back to who I was and I don't want to be in the circles that I'm in. I don't want to engage with the type of that type of people that my marketed self was starting to engage with. I want to go back to a more simpler life where I have face-to-face contact with my teachers, face-to-face contact with my friends. And whether I have fans or don't have fans, I want to produce art that's meaningful to me. It seems like it requires some serious uh, self-introspection must find your behind. It, it, self-introspection and, and a lot of difficulty. And and to be fully transparent, a lot of tears. Let me ask you this question. Would you say that, you know, the, those moments where you're getting off social media, was it was it like a drug? I mean, is you know, what, what an addict would feel? To this day, absolutely. I will go back online and see some of my peers and where they're going and think, like, gosh, I should be right there with them. I should We should be in this together. I should be. I had that many followers, too. It, when I first got off, you know, it wasn't just like cold turkey. I got off and created a fake account and was still looking at what everyone else was doing online, mm-hmm. you know, because I couldn't just disconnect completely, you know. So I'm like a voyeuristic social media user now where I'm keeping up with the Joneses and seeing what everybody's doing. But absolutely, I would say from the classifications of, an, of, 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 a, of a drug that's, a, that's an addictive substance, social media was definitely that for me. And, I, and there are studies that say that it's that for other people as well. It's dangerous. You know, I really have to thank you for having this conversation because, you know, when I look back at these scholars of the past that, that you know, impacted me the most, Imam al-Ghazali, Sheikh Ahmed ibn Ajiba, and they were the ones who wrote about their inner deep feelings the most that, you know, you and I would never want anyone to see. But they put it out there. They put it in print uh, to help guide us later on because they're like, hey, this is what I used to be like. This was me. And I would say, oh, my God, that is me right now. <laughs> and here's something you could try to attain if you go through this really difficult process. So may Allah bless you, you know, for the courage of having this conversation. It wasn't by choice. It was something that I felt that was necessary for me to do to save myself and to save my family and the people that were that were that were close to me. You know, what, what my, one of my, my eldest son came to me one day and said, you know, said, I feel like you're you're more concerned with. Uh, reaching out to other people and your masses and, and your fans than you are with engaging with us as a family here at, at home. And, you know, in order to do this, to, to, to the market, to the level that we did, we were working 16, 16 hour days, seven days a week. It's work. It's work, you right. know. And and I wasn't working 16 hours a day on my spiritual development or 16 hour days on perfecting my reading of Quran or sitting in Khalwa or working on Saluk. It, it was that took over completely to where the spiritual aspect was almost non-existent. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the, here's, the, here's the issue. But if you're marketing yourself as a spiritual artist, right, to, to, coin your, to use your term, but you're not actually working on the spirituality at all, then the whole thing's a facade. And I can just, I can finally admit now at 44 years old, I spent five years 
plus of my life in a complete facade. I had tricked myself to think that what I was doing was khair and that it was all good. But in retrospect, looking back now, it wasn't. Well, and that brings me to another point, something I want to touch on with you, Mustafa, because, you know, um, looking back in the trends of Islam in America, one thing that comes up to me is this, you know, this establishment of, of third spaces. And yours was one of the faces that was attached to that, at least when I first saw it. I mean, can you give me just some clarification on what was your intention behind third space? So th third space, we put a lot of marketing value into it and a lot of time and effort to, to market it. And it took off in a way that we didn't imagine that it was that it was going to. Uh, it, it, third space for me came at a time when I had just come back from overseas. I'd spent a decade overseas and I just came back to the United States of America. And it was at a time when people were still this was 2007, 2008. Uh, and at least where we were in, in, in California, it was a time where people were really trying to reconcile their Americanness. And, and there was this push-pull between immigrants and converts. And it was – you can even remember back then like the nomenclature and like the, 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 the talks and the debates and stuff between immigrants and, and, and converts. And, and it really affected me, right? Uh, in retrospect, I should have came back to the United States, sat for five years, not said anything publicly, not marketed anything. But it was really uh, – it, it caught me because I started to feel like as a convert now, where do I go? Where, if I go to the masjid, there's an uncle there that's angry and is going to make me feel bad. Or he's going to tell my wife that her hijab is incorrect or, or some, you know, auntie is going to tell her that. And, and so I started to feel and then I started to listen to the stories of a lot of these people that were coming into Islam. And it wasn't just converts. It was born Muslims as well who were saying that they're just having these horrific experiences in the masjid. And, and as a result, you know, part of my work at that time was in counseling some of these people who would saying they have one foot in the dean and one foot out. And a, and a lot of them honestly were, were all the way out. Like we don't want to have anything to do with Islam anymore. I can't culturally reconcile this stuff. And so I'm on my way out. And so, you know, I thought at least from, for, and I'll speak for myself in terms of the third space phenomenon was that there, we have to provide a space for these people. There has to be somewhere where these people can go where they're not feeling like this, where they, don't feel like they have to get run out of the the Muslim community. You know, it's funny. It's funny when hearing you talk about this because you know, obviously, this you know that is a, is a topic that uh, the community has been discussing in the last few years about this. You know, the, the exodus out of the the masjid, and um, you know, I don't know if Mutasim, if you have any um, experiences, but I can tell you that even as someone who I feel is still connected to um, masajid. Necessarily, I'm, I'm I'm not gone to the third space yet, at least not yet. I'm I'm still trying to stay grounded in the sajid. Um, you know, and I since a kid I used to go to the mosque, but I will tell you that every time I go to, especially if I go to a new mosque, like if I'm visiting somewhere, I almost assume that I'm going to get yelled at or <laughs> criticized by one of the people in there, right? I don't know. It's have, a have subconscious you guys have to thing. Right? Yeah, I think I mean, it's like it's not necessarily imagine, true. Which, you it's know, not true. Right. But just imagine though, you know. I'm assuming I'm not the only person who feels that way when they enter a masjid, even for someone who feels that the who recognizes the importance of the masjid. But for anyone who has even less connection with the masjid, or they even have any doubts about its, you know, its uh, importance in the community, why why wouldn't they leave? I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, if that, if that's what they feel. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll tell you. You know, for me, I was as a young kid growing up in the mosque. I was always being yelled at because I was a super troublemaker. So if I walk into a masjid and I'm not getting yelled at, there's something wrong. <laughs> you know? So I just need. It's like what? 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 This is not normal. But yeah, absolutely. Like you know, listen. I remember I had a coworker and um, 
she, you know, she she became Muslim. You know, but but Allah Subhanahu brought her heart to, to to Islam. She was from a Christian background, and uh, her her first day at the masjid, the day that she took the shahada, the day of Jumaa. You know, she didn't wear the hijab, and you know, she wore a skirt that was modest but not going all the way down. And uh, I remember afterwards, uh, after the mosque experience, as uh, she came to speak to me and a few other people there, she had tears in her eyes. And I said, what's wrong? Why are you crying? Are you just tears of joy? And she's like, no, some lady just yelled at me because my skirt didn't go all the way down past my ankle and I didn't have the scarf on my head. This was her first experience after just becoming a Muslim. That's rough. Now, you know, I... I can't even imagine what that feels like, you know, because I've never gone through that. And, and and just also remember as well that who who are mosque-going Muslims, right? This is the minority of the Muslims in America. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's a size one. I think uh, it's like 5 to 10% by yeah. some research that only 5 to 10% of Muslim Americans are Attend actually mosque attending regular. mosque, right? So what does that say about our state as a community at large and, as, and our misogynist organizations? Uh, and then and yet still we're even pushing more people out. So, so that's what we were trying to to. There were real life problems and real life trauma that we were trying to help fix, and 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 alhamdulillah, by the grace of Allah, we we were able to do so. However, we didn't think five, ten years down the line, in terms of what would happen if this kind of program got put in the hands of people who didn't have the same intentions that that we did. Hindsight. Yeah. And so hindsight's always 2020, right? And so what ended up happening, uh, and you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, because this is just my own personal view of it, is that third space became synonymous with the, uh, a liberal mentality. It became synonymous with this push of, of ultra liberalism. And I would go so far as to say predatory liberalism, meaning if you don't do the things that I do that might or might not be questionable in Islam, then you're not real or you're not cool. Right. Or, you know, and then it, it became you're not open. But you don't have a big heart. You, you don't have a big heart. And so, you, you know, you if you if you were uh, a male, then your 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 outfit became like the most important thing. How modern was your outfit? What type of suit were you wearing? What socks were you wearing? What kind of shoes did you have? If you're a, a, a female, it's how many makeup videos do you have? How many hijab videos do you have? How many followers do you have on YouTube? And not that these things are at all in, in negative in and of themselves, but as a push against Sharia and as a push against tradition, they become extremely dangerous. And so, you know, I personally, as someone who put a lot of my media and marketing effort into pushing this third space thing, sort of became in certain uh, elements of the community, sort of the, the poster child of, of ultra liberalism, which is and, and to be honest, to very be, different than who you are. It's different than who I am. Right. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 but to be honest, you know, that here's uh, I haven't mentioned this to anybody ever yet. The as we pulled ourselves away from the masjid and as we pushed more of this third space uh, ideology, I started to make internal changes. Mm. I became much more liberal than I was before I started this. I started to hang out in circles that I wouldn't have hung out in before. I started to visit places that I would have considered reprehensible 
uh, before. And then as this kind of rhetoric of ultra-liberalism or predatory liberalism was, was taking hold, then it became anybody who was conservative was bad, right? It became like, oh, you're just a Wahhabi or you're a Salafi or, you know, and then it was just everything was bad. You're ultra-conservative and you're wrong and anything harsh. So then I started to even play in my own head like some of those things that were just Sharia before that I used to follow were, were maybe wrong and I should loosen up a little bit. And it caused me to, to engage with people that I shouldn't have engaged with, to, to run in circles that I shouldn't have run with. And that didn't change for me until I decided that there needed to be a push for me personally back into the masjid. Why? Because I needed those uncles that were the checks and balance right. that were, I was so offended by before when they weren't there anymore. No one was calling me to something higher. No one was calling me to something good. Everyone was like, hey, come party with us. I mean, it's interesting to hear your take on this because, uh, you know, my own conception of what we would call third space movement is that typically it was third space essentially was just looking for an alternative Masjid, basically, in a sense that, that that sort of like going to a third space and eventually it's just going to turn out to be another masjid. But you're talking about a, a different phenomenon. Yeah, this is was it? not at all our intention. This the the intention was not to create uh, another masjid or an alternative to the masjid. And and you know I'll be honest, like if, a lot of this third space talk was 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 uh, was was um, become synonymous with with the organization that I was working with at the time out of California called Tatleef Collective. And and they catch a lot of rap for this as well, for driving people away from the masjid. But what people don't realize is that where Tatleef is located in Fremont, California, it's kitty corner to a masjid, a masjid called Masjid Khalil. We never, right? you never see, I never, you never that. see that. We did Juma at Masjid Khalil, Interesting. right? When we had events at Tatleef, we would go to Masjid Khalil for prayer. So the intention was never to take people out of the mosque. The intention was to create kind of like a halfway house, if I can use that term, uh, to help people prepare for what they're going to experience when they get in the masjid. So if you're going to go to the masjid and, 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 and the, the auntie is going to yell at you for, for your skirt being too low, you have the, the, the tools to be able to navigate that without having to throw the baby out with the bathwater and saying, I don't want to be a Muslim anymore. So the, the, the intention was never to, to be the alternative to the masjid or replacement to the masjid. But that's why I said we didn't see who was going to grab hold of this of this ideology and take it? And the people who did were the people who didn't want to be at all connected with the mosque anymore. And in fact, they came out. At, we were doing it at the same time when this film Unmosked came out. Right. right. And we weren't unmosked at Tatleef. Mm -hmm. We wanted to be remosked. We wanted to just take a step back and see where this thing was going and give people the tools necessary to know how to engage the, the masjid. We have great relationships back then with all of the masjid in our in our community. Which is amazing because now here we are, and what year are we on? 2018, 17? I don't know anymore. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> 17. <laughs> you know, it's all it's all coming together, and at events that we have to host. This is still something that we need to address. Being remote. Because this know, is very interesting. Because because I think it comes back to now. So now the organizations are masajid. They have to remosque people. Mm -hmm. So what does that sort of require? It requires um, a marketing. <laughs> type of uh, right to reverse mean. what came from the past. So we're sort of coming almost full circle un now. Yeah, and 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 so you know, and so organizations have to build a brand, and you have to your budget has to build a brand. It has to build like you know, this is we're the cool masjid. We're the ones that have the rec center. We have like you know, um, mega pool with the mega imam and now. stuff like that. You know, so it's and it's like this battle of it's a battle of of uh, marketing actually in a way. Because you, you have to sort of present your alternative to this phenomenon. It is a battle and it's a difficult one. In this battle of marketing, it's a difficult one because you see 
a lot of the elements that are pushing this sort of uh, hyper-liberalism, uh, and by hyper-liberalism, what, what I mean is not people who are, are just liberal. A hyper-liberalism, predatory liberalism, what I mean is people who would take anybody who has any type of conservative ideology and label them as bad or label them as, as wrong. And that's something that we're seeing more prevalent these days, right. if and you that, ask me. I so, mean, like, if, if a guy comes comes and he's wearing a turban and a thobe, it's right. kind of like, oh, look at that guy with a turban and thobe, right? It, that, to me, is not healthy for us as a, as a community. In, any more than the guy wearing the thobe and the turban is making looking at the guy who's the person making well, look, the guy that's wearing regular clothes. To, to have a very open conversation, I mean, look, I, I grew up as a Mina, Mina child going to Isna, and it really hurts me when I see some some people that I grew up with through those channels now on Facebook or Instagram attacking things that were known to be part of the Sunnah of our Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. This is what falls into me into this uh, you know predatory liberalism. Fine, if you don't want to practice it, don't. But once you start attacking it, you're you're taking yourself to a really dangerous place. And you're also putting yourself up as the ideal Muslim, which in reality, you know, if we go behind closed doors, we realize that most of us do have a lot of problems that the public is just not seeing. So be very careful with that. Um, that's why it's very scary when I see these very subtle liberal pushes that uh, may seem a very minuscule now, but a few years down the road, you can see the trajectory. You see the trajectory. And, and I want to be fair because for the sake of this conversation, we're, we're discussing third space and, and the phenomenon, how it developed and, and, and how it got to where it is now. And so I'm using these terms and we could have an entirely different podcast on predatory conservatism as well. Absolutely. Right? I mean, yeah. Both of these ends of the spectrum of these extremes, they're, they're both dangerous. But just for the purpose of that, I, I want people to understand that uh, I'm not absolutely. attacking liberalism by any means. But but predatory liberalism. And liberalism means different things to it means different different people things to, and how the context is Exactly, used different things. So, so just for, for my own understanding of it uh, in the context of this conversation uh, is why I'm, I'm, I'm bringing up the things that I'm bringing up now. All right. So I, I want to come back again to this marketing thing because uh, I really want to pick your brain since you've um, you know worked in this sphere. As organizations and masjids are trying to attract followers, following what, in your experience, or what you've seen, has had um, a, a positive impact in this goal of trying to bring people back to the dean in, in the masjid in, in, in that way? So I think be, before we can determine what has worked and what hasn't worked, uh, we need to determine how are we equating what works? Like, what, what is the benchmark for what works? Uh, my, my understanding now is, for the most part, what works is how much money did you raise or how many likes did you get on on Facebook, or how many followers were you able to to amass? And so, and that's usually how I'm judged as a as a consultant that comes in for the work that I do. It's usually how viral can you make this, and, and to the to the to the tone that people actually come in and say, "We want this video to go viral." Like that's the intention. We want this video to go viral. So f- for me, oftentimes what's worked the most hasn't got the most likes. It hasn't got the most virality uh, in the video, but it's changed hearts. When you first said that, like likes and money, that to me is not a, a marker of the idea of it seems very shallow. It is uh, shallow. Uh, which is not. It, it's entirely shallow. And it's not at all a benchmark of success. Again, I was able to amass a large social media following, but I was entirely unsuccessful. 
right? In a social media world, sure, I was successful. But in the spiritual realm, in my own personal development, I was completely unsuccessful. And so, but I think this is what a lot of people equated as. So if I were, if someone were to hire me to come in and create a, a promo video for them, a marketing video for them, and they were to put that out on YouTube, for example, and the video got 200 likes, I probably wouldn't be called back to do another video for them. Right. And so this is interesting because that now there, be, there, there becomes an issue because maybe I could do work that I know there's a lot of ihsan in. And I know that those 200 people that saw it, their lives would be changed. Right. But because it's marketing and because it's a business and because there's an exchange of money between the organization and myself, I'm probably going to put some elements in that. They're going to have it go viral. Right. And not I'm not just speaking of myself now. I'm speaking of media creators in, in general now. And so there's this kind of dog chasing its tail. You, you start getting you start getting you start getting both. And so then it becomes difficult to determine then what is successful and what is not successful. Again, social media has made us completely unsocial as a as a as a as a community. It's, it's, you know, you would be able to know if something was successful if you were teaching a class physically to people because there's feedback. You can say, did you benefit from that message that I taught you? Did you learn something from that? And then there's feedback. With social media, the feedback is like, yes, 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 like. There's no dislike button on social media. And so it's hard to equate that. And so I'm not sure if there's a way for us to determine that. So right, yeah, yeah, because uh, I know I, I see totally what you're saying because, you know, when you're dealing physically with people, uh, you can see – you can see that tarbiya, for example, was a young person. You can see like you can see the fruits of that, like a teacher is teaching a student. But if they're just getting these social media reactions, um, first of all, most of social media media actions. I, I remember the first time someone explained uh, this to me. For example, you put an article, and then someone likes an article, and she explained to me, so you know, um, when someone likes an article or likes a post, it doesn't mean they actually read it. And to me, I was like, I, I couldn't believe it. But now, as I've been engaged in it more, I completely believe it because it's all about it's just. Oh, everybody else is liking that. Oh, if I like this, people are going to know that I'm woke. So, and these companies, these companies, they're geared for this, right? And so, they they want for this type of interaction because it's it's, it's kind of they, they've made it. They've done studies where they've done these whole these red buttons that come up one notification, two notifications. The the way they got that philosophy was from slot machines and gambling. It creates this like I have to check and see what's coming next. I have to check and see what's coming. Next. If I have if my phone shows that I have six notifications, I have to log on. It's all geared to get people to come back. What's the easiest way to get people to come back is to make people feel good, and that's why there's no dislike button. If you feel good about if I if I put put an article if you write it put an article up there and there's like 300 likes on it, it might be that only four people read it. And now that video is is probably the most prominent means of of marketing now. The, the way that they do their algorithms are the same. So Facebook has this autoplay, right? If you put a video on a, on a Facebook post, it has an autoplay. You can't stop it. You can stop the, the, the audio won't play, but the video will start playing. So the way Facebook algorithms work is that after three seconds, they count that as a view. So you could just be on your page reading something and it'll get a view, which is why organizations now you can look if you have a YouTube channel and a Facebook channel. Your Facebook channel does much better in terms of video views than YouTube's do. I think YouTube's at, at 12 seconds that they count it for, for a view. All of this is geared, again, towards what they would consider success. But for us, in the terms of what we're talking about, again... There's no internalization of anything. There's no internalization you know, of anything. Is it really successful or is it is it not successful? So really, I mean, for an organization, they could possibly have a certain level of success in getting their message out, uh, you know, via Facebook, via, via Twitter, and via YouTube. But the impact of an organization may be very different than the impact of social media on an individual. 
Absolutely. I would uh, would caution that statement, just adding this, that organizations can fall under the same disease that an individual can and that you get so focused on the organization itself that you will do anything to promote that brand and that organization and you're so caught up in just that organization and how it's seen and how it's presented. The organizations cannot absolve themselves from this completely and still engage on this platform because there's something that's called social capital, mm-hmm. right? And social capital now is something that's is important to everybody who's engaging in social media. And what social capital is, is basically what is the perception of others concerning you or concerning your organization? And so if I go to ABC organization on Facebook, I'm going to look at their likes. It's just something natural that we're going to do. How many people are following these people? And if it's 50 people, I might immediately check out and not engage with them because it signals to me that they're not important to other people. And But if I go to an organization that has 300,000 likes, it might Im- immediately signal in me, this is an important organization. Now, these two things are, are very problematic. Why? Because you can market for 300,000 likes in Egypt or Indonesia. Sure. For people who aren't even looking at your page in languages where they don't even understand what you're doing. And that's just for social capital. Or... People might not that follow you might be have a more physical presence with you. You might be teaching in the masjid or at a home or at an organization, and they're not people who are necessarily engaging in, in social media. So there's no real way to equate the worth of someone of an organization that has 50 likes versus one that has 500,000. And because of that, most organizations will tend towards increasing social capital. Again, I've been asked by many organizations to help us increase our likes. How do we increase our likes? We need to get them up above. 25,000, 100,000. And is that ultimately, I mean, because we want more people to reach because we want more people to donate to us? I mean, is is that the driver? Because usually when I look back and say, why are we doing something with our particular organization? I say, well, you know, is it is it for fundraising? Is that a driver? And if that is, then... Well, I think for a lot of people, it's, it, it really actually, it is there. They want... They want their message to be out. They want to, to see their message be disseminated. Um, they feel they're calling to good. And so they want that to be presented to as many people as, as possible. Yeah. To, um, to be fair, I think that's the case. And, and again, as someone who's worked with a lot of these organizations, a lot of times it starts that way, but it doesn't always end that way, right? Yeah. Because because if you're, let's, like, for a hypothetical example, if you're an organization that, that is, is trying to raise $10,000 for just for the sake of this example, and you've never raised $10,000 before, and this seems like a really daunting and difficult task for you. And you're able to use the tools of social media marketing and media production to, to help you to do this. You, you, you might even do a crowdfunding campaign, which is the new means of, of, of marketing, especially within the Muslim community. You, you, you do the campaign and then you get $10,000 that you didn't have before. It's very difficult to say to yourself, that's enough. We're good. We got the $10,000. we are good. Because then it becomes... What, we could we could maybe get 25000 if we do it, right? And I'm saying this as someone who's worked with these organizations and, and helped in this capacity. So it's, it's a, it goes back to my story as well. You know, when I first got 50,000 fans on Facebook, it was like I, I wanted to have a celebration. Like, right. wow, there's 50,000 people. And then it was, I got to get to 100, right? And then 100 wasn't satisfied. And then when it was 200, I wasn't satisfied. You know, it, it's, when you have a goal and you set your goal as the horizon, the problem is, is when you get to that horizon, there's another horizon, right. right? And so this really, I think what we're talking about is we need our senior scholars. Right. This is kind of my plea. Okay. We need our senior <laughs> scholars to develop a minhaj for us, a set of, not a set of rules, but a set of correct adab 
on how to engage with social media, not just at the individual level. And I'm not just meaning, oh, the interaction between a young man and a young girl conversing on chat late at night. I mean, organizationally as well. What are the best practices? What are the pitfalls? What are the things we should be looking out for? We know as individuals, for people who have taken a path of Saluk, that there are certain things that you do and you don't do, right? I think we need that same thing for social media too. This whole thing has come on so fast, so quickly. I don't think we're really equipped to, to navigate these waters on our own. It's coming from a media marketing expert. <laughs> but, it, it, you know, I, I think for a lot of people, uh, myself included, I mean, this is the reality. We're, and it's just like, you know, when television first came out, right? I mean, there was a lot of, it was a new technology. And a lot of us can can say that having grown up in that as a, in a television age, it affects your brain, right? You know, like we didn't know how it affects like how you perceive things and how it affects even your brain processes. Just like we're seeing now that social media research is coming out now, um, you know, really every month there's always something about well, what it does to your brain and how, how, it, how it may hinder your relationships with real people. Uh, but the reality is that it's here to stay it's, 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 you know, there's, there's a lot of benefit in it, especially in the Dean. I mean, like a lot of people that's, they get their primary instruction for better or worse in, in Dean from social media. Which scares me. So it's, it's scary, yeah, but at the honest, same time, really you can't really, scary. you have to also have to recognize that. So you can't. No, I'm not blind to the benefit of it. There's no doubt about that. But the fact that, you know, my religiosity is coming from something I'm just, you know, one or two lines I'm reading and then that's it is kind of scary because that that builds this sort of you know uh, you know uh, this euphoric feel inside my heart that is very different than one who is actively engaged in the worship of God and i think it's it's very dangerous when we equate the two and i'll give you an example i mean i used to be an individual who would go lecturing anywhere and i'd give these amazing what i would deem at the time these amazing lectures that People would be moved by. Some would be crying. They were amazing. I heard. <laughs> Allah bless you. And uh, you know, people would come to me talking to me about that. But then when Sheikh Mukhtar would tell me to sit down for five minutes in still dhikr of Allah, it was as if my world was crumb. I could not do that. So it wasn't equating for me. So that's why I'm, I'm not discounting the benefit. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm just saying, I'm just you know, it's I, dangerous. It, 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 I think it it needs to be looked at as as a tool to drive people into that. Right. Yeah. That, and that, to and that, drive people into that relationship that, like, say, you have with your teachers or, you know. 100 percent. And I'm at all I'm not at all, uh, you know, advocating that, you know, we need to get rid of social media or, or people need to do what I did and just get off completely and don't have any engagement. Again, I didn't get off completely. I just had fake accounts that I was still checking what everyone else is doing. So the drug was still there. I just wasn't engaging in the way that I was doing before. But we do need parameters. We do need to know. How is it that we're that we can engage in this in a way that's that's holistic, in a way that's beneficial to us, and not in a way that's that's harmful for us? And maybe Mustafa, you know, with your personal experience, you could be one of the individuals that's driving that conversation. I think you know, I truly feel that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala put you through the experience that you went through so that you could be that person. Again, you know, I'm not interested in going back to social media the way that I was before. Sure. Uh, but but perhaps I can do it in my work with organizations and 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 I and I have been doing. It. There's organizations who've been asking me for a long time now to create promo videos for them, 
and, I, and I'm not, you know, I'm saying that we, you need to have a, a different mentality behind it if you want me to do it. There's plenty of people that are going to make promo videos for you now. But if you want to help grow your organization in a way that's holistic, in a way that's beneficial to the community and not harmful to yourselves, then that's an interesting conversation that I think we can have. You know, you've had experience, uh, obviously, Mustafa, you have experience in organizational work and media. Uh, you already mentioned that, you know, we need our senior scholars to uh, compose, uh, you know, sort of parameters. But in your own view, um, if you if you if you can, what are some of those important questions or important principles that we need to abide by as we approach marketing and social media? It's a good question. Yeah, I don't know, and I can maybe just speak for myself. Like what I would like for myself personally is is and what I'm attempting to do now, and I say and I have to say attempting to do now is I'm I'm attempting to live in both worlds, the social media world and in my real physical world. I'm attempting to be my most authentic self. Uh, and I didn't find that that social media had a, a, created a platform for that because I had to show my best self. Social media is about living your highlights, right? It's your best version of yourself with the bad parts edited out. And, and even one of my teachers said, you know, like he said, be careful that people don't envy you for things that aren't even real about you. Right. Like, so this, this, this facade that I created, you're creating people, people are going to envy you for things that you're not even really living. And so again, in full transparency, you, people would think that, you know, at that time when I was at the height of my career, I was, I was traveling, I was doing stuff for the state department. I was doing workshops, lectures. There was a, a year where I was gone 260 days uh, out of that year. Uh, and I was kind of, you know, living that life. But what people don't realize is that I was still, trying to find money to pay rent and keep the lights on and, and, and fix my broken down car. You know, I, I wasn't taking selfies of me outside fixing my broken down 2004 Volvo that had 300,000 miles on it. It was the picture of me in the, in the SUV that came to pick me up at the airport to take me to my, to my lecture. That was false. All that was false. Those were just portions of my life. So what I'm trying to do now is even through social media is, is, is live all of that. And, and to give more an authentic view of, of this is me. There was a major part of my life that was hidden from the public. And I don't want to do that anymore. That's dangerous. And I think it's dangerous for our youth. It's dangerous for our adults. It's dangerous for all of us. So now what I want to do is I want to live a more authentic life. And I'm realizing that to do that, it is not as easy as it sounds. It is not as easy as it sounds. And I need a teacher to kind of hold me by the hand and say, look, do this. Don't do that. I need, <laughs> this is going to sound ironic. I need the uncles at the mosque that used to chastise me for wearing, <laughs> you know, my, my pants too long or for having a baseball cap in the masjid because they didn't think it was. I need that back in my life again. I don't need praise. I don't need people to tell me that I'm great. I don't need people to tell me that I'm amazing. I have enough that's doing that on a daily basis, 24 hours a day. I don't need any help in that. I need teachers that are going to tell me, sit down, shut up do thicker for five minutes. And I do. And I have teachers now who say, take that photo down. If I post one, take that photo down. No questions asked. Okay. I'll take it down. That's what I need. So I think what we're really talking about, at least for me, and I don't know how we do this on a grand scale is that we need to reconnect with scholarship, we need to reconnect with our teachers, not in a way that I went to the conference and I took a selfie picture of the, of the shake and, and put a quote of there and said that I'm a student. And so now everyone thinks that I'm a student, but in a way where I'm having real interactions with my scholars to the point where they know everything about me. It's kind of like for me to go to, to not do that as like having a, a, a really bad pain in my stomach and then going to the doctor and then the doctor saying, tell me what's going on with you. And I say nothing. I'm fine. I'm perfect. 
I'm fine, I'm perfect, I don't have any problems at all, and then expect to be cured of that. What I want to do now is live authentically and say, look, this is me. Give Like it or not, you know, I think it was Maya Angelou, correct me if I'm wrong, it was Maya Angelou who said, um, people will like you, people will hate you, and none of it will have anything to do with you. So all of this marketing and stuff that I was doing, it didn't benefit me in any way. I want to just live an authentic life, and I think I need a, a real teacher to kind of teach me how to do that, not just on social media, but outside of social media as well. I want to thank you, Mustafa, for joining it's us. Uh, Mutasim, always yeah, a pleasure to have you here again. Product. Mustafa, is there, so, so, well, you know, usually sometimes we ask our guests, like, how do you follow <laughs> How, how do you follow them? <laughs> how do you follow me? But, so what do you, okay, so, what's your fake account? So, 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 so to follow, I don't have a website anymore. My website's gone. I gave my Twitter account over to my, my, my sons who are, are up and coming uh, kickboxers. And I have a private uh, Facebook account. And so if you meet me in a physical world and we have a physical interaction and we get to know each other, then we can interact on social media. Beautiful. Sounds great. Okay, I want to thank all listeners again for uh, joining us today. Uh, please remember to visit our uh, website, imanwire.com, uh, for the latest podcast episodes and uh, articles. We hope to see you again. Uh, please leave a review on iTunes. And uh, assalamu alaikum.